Good evening. How's everybody doing? We're uh, going to be a, a day late this week on getting our Bible study out for uh, reasons beyond our control. Our wonderful Justin was on call and wasn't able to come on our normal recording night, but praise the Lord, we are here tonight and excited to get back into First uh, Timothy. Last week, we talked about um, the qualifications of pastors, bishops, overseers, uh, whatever uh, word you want to use there. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about deacons. And uh, when we think about a deacon, um, we, we need to, to understand uh, where we get that word, what it, what it means. And it comes from a Greek word that means to serve. Um, and originally it referred to serving tables. Now we need to go back to Acts chapter six, uh, and Acts chapter six, they, uh, the apostles called for them to select seven men and, um, to help with, uh, the distri distribution of food and things of that nature, uh, to some of the widows and, uh, the apostles were, uh, completely, uh, overwhelmed may not be the right word, but they were completely immersed in the study of the word and uh, they needed other men to do this. Now, these guys, uh, these seven that they chose weren't, um, they weren't necessarily deacons as we see them today, uh, because we know among those seven uh, were Philip and Stephen and they were evangelists. Uh, but these guys performed uh, the s similar tasks, if you will, similar service as deacons would today. And uh, the Greek word for uh, deacon is diakonos. And uh, it came to denote uh, service in the church. You know, originally, like I just said, that it referred originally to serving tables, but it, it became service within the church, within uh, the body of Christ. And uh, these deacons that uh, Paul is addressing Timothy here uh, concerning them. Uh, they serve under the spiritual leadership of the elders or uh, bishop or pastor, and uh, they help them uh, exercise uh, oversight in the practical matters of the goings-on of church life. Now, Scripture does not define any specific responsibility of a deacon, uh, they do whatever spiritual ministry is necessary. They serve. And it reminds me of um, something my dad told me. I was ordained many years ago as a, in the ministry of a deacon. And in the ordination council, uh, different ordained men will ask you questions or they'll give you uh, different bits of advice, so forth and so on. And my dad told me something, and it really, really stuck with me. And uh, he said, don't you ever forget that this calling that is placed upon you is that of a servant. And I really thought about that, a servant. And I, I began to think about the Lord Jesus Christ washing the disciples' feet, a servant, someone uh, who is uh, self-sacrificing uh, for the good of the Lord, the church, and others. And so that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about deacons. So I'm just going to read, read these qualifications, and then we're going to back up just a little bit, kind of like we did last week. And we're going to talk about these verses. 
And uh, for those of you that were with us or those of you who are just now uh, tuning in, we're going to be in chapter 3 of the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to begin reading in verse 8. We're going to read down through verse 13. So let's start. Chapter 3, verse 8 of the book of 1 Timothy. It says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to too much wine, excuse me, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So before we get into that, let's uh, let's have a little word of prayer and thank God for his word. Father God, we come humbly before you here tonight, Father. We thank you for your love and your goodness, Lord, and your mercy. God, I'm thankful tonight for your word. Father, I'm thankful uh, for the authority that's contained within it. Father, I'm thankful for the food, the spiritual food that is contained within it for us, Lord. God, I pray that everything we do, Lord, that we uh, that we say, Father, here brings honor and glory to thy name. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We just talked about deacons, and that's uh, kind of what Paul opens with here. He says, likewise, deacons. Uh, so that's who... Uh, he is he is addressing right here. He is writing the letter to Timothy, but he's addressing uh, the, this position uh, of deacon. And the first thing that kind of jumps out at me here, he says, likewise, deacons must be reverent. Now, when we think about the word reverent, uh, we need to think about a man that is uh, serious in mind. Uh, he's serious in his character. He's not silly or flippant. Uh, when it comes to serious matters. I served with a man uh, as a deacon who was also a deacon uh, in a church where we were serving. And I'm not going to call his name, uh, but this man uh, was, he, he was, he was hilarious. He always had a joke. He always had a wise crack. And, and, and if you weren't, uh, if you were just talk to him on the street, you would say, man, this, this guy's funny. He, he's always got some kind of joke or something to tell. But it, when it came down to serious matters, uh, matters concerning uh, interpreting the Word of God, uh, just matters, uh, things that go on within the church, uh, this man could be deathly serious. And he could be, uh, in fact, when he would speak, which he didn't speak a whole lot, particularly when we were gathered together, but when he did speak, everybody in the room shut up and listened to him. And uh, so... He was reverent. He was a, a reverent man. He was serious in mind and character, even though he was, uh, you know, he would make wisecracks and so forth. But when it came to serious matters, the silliness stopped. Uh, and I always respected him for that and the knowledge that, uh, uh, that he bestowed upon me as I grew as a deacon. Let's go on. After that, after it says that they must be reverent, he says uh, to not be double-tongued. Uh, this man, uh, when it talks about a man that is not double-tongued, uh, he cannot say one thing to somebody and then run to somebody else and say something else. Uh, 
that his speech could not be hypocritical, not saying one thing and living another way. Uh, he had to be honest. He has to be consistent. Let's go on and see what it says. Not given to much wine. He must not be uh, preoccupied with drink. You know, we discussed that. That was one of the qualifications for uh, the pastors. And just like the pastors, uh, this is more than just a prohibition against drunkenness. Uh, he, he must not have the reputation uh, as a drinker. His uh, judgment cannot be clouded uh, by alcohol. We all know what alcohol does to our judgment. Uh, but mainly, the main point of this is uh, his lifestyle has got to be uh, radically different from that of the world. And the reason for that is so he can lead men uh, to holiness and not to sin. Uh, he, he's got to be completely different than what the world uh, says is okay. It has to be according to God's word. It goes on uh, to say here in this first verse, in the eighth verse, uh, that uh, he cannot be greedy for money. Again, uh, just like we talked about last week when we were talking about pastors, uh, they mustn't abuse their office to make money. Uh, and, and when we think about the first century church here, the New Testament church, uh, this was uh, an especially important uh, qualification here during that time, just as it is today. Uh, but then uh, it was the deacons who routinely um, handled the money. Uh, and not only in their handling and the taking, taking up of the money, but they also were the ones that distributed uh, the money to those that were in need. So uh, this man, uh, as part of his character, as part of these qualifications, he cannot be greedy for money. In verse 9, he concludes this sentence, uh, which this is also a qualification uh, that uh, says holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So not only uh, must he be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to too, mu to too much wine, uh, not greedy for money, and holding to the mystery of the faith. Now, when we think about that word uh, mystery, uh, perhaps that may be a little bit confusing to you if you read that and you think, well, why in the world would, would, would God want um, uh, his faith to be a mystery? Uh, but we've got to understand what he's saying here. Uh, and what, when he says a mystery of the faith, it is uh, describing a truth that has previously been hidden but is now revealed. Uh, and this includes uh, Christ's incarnation, uh, the fact that Christ came down from heaven and took on flesh and lived here on this earth, uh, leading up to him doing that, it was indeed a mystery. Uh, the, prophet, uh, the Messiah had been prophesied, but it actually happening uh, had been somewhat a mystery. We, they, they didn't know, but yet now it has been revealed. Uh, his incarnation, uh, his indwelling in the form of the Holy Spirit within believers, this is something that had not taken place until the Lord came to this earth, till he died on a cross, till he ascended back to heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended on the 120 in the upper room and the Holy Spirit indwelt in them. And that's what happens when we get saved. Uh, that was also a mystery that is now revealed. 
uh, also the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles, which is now taking place. They had, uh, they had been uh, separated uh, for all these centuries, but are now unified through the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel and lawlessness and the rapture of the church. And I want to read something to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that really explains uh, this mystery, if you will, so well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, and I'm going to read just a few verses here. It says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. See, there it is. There's the mystery he's talking about. For they had known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was essential that the Lord Jesus be crucified. Uh, possibly had they known, had it not been uh, revealed in the sense that we know now, perhaps they might not even crucified him. But his crucifixion was essential. It was his shed blood that we need uh, for forgiveness. Verse 9, it says, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. There is that Spirit, that indwelling Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the, the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of a world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So Paul words that uh, when we read that, uh, those verses of scripture, I think it really uh, gives us a clearer understanding of what he's talking about uh, when he says mystery of the faith and with a pure conscience. Now, we talked a little bit uh, earlier in our study here in First Timothy about a, a, a pure conscience. Paul actually uses the word good conscience earlier in chapter one. But just as a reminder, uh, God has written his law on man's heart. So a man knows the basic standard uh, of right and wrong. And when he violates that standard, um, his, his conscience produces uh, fear, it produces guilt, it produces shame. But on the other hand, when a believer does the will of God, he enjoys the assurance, he enjoys the peace and the joy of a pure conscience a good conscience so that's what paul is talking about here well, let's move on to the next sentence here in, in in verse 10 he says but let these also be first tested then let them serve as deacons being found blameless uh when we read that phrase there uh to let these be first or excuse me first be tested uh, this is a present tense of a verb, and it indicates uh, an ongoing evaluation of a deacon's character and his service by the church. As this goes on, he needs to be found blameless. Paul's words right here, being found blameless. Uh, because of his being evaluated, uh, excuse me, evaluated ongoingly, and mean, in other words, this he's being in, uh, evaluated constantly. 
his life should be above reproach. His life should be above uh, criticism is what that word means. In other words, he should be living a holy life. Uh, we preached um, here a couple of weeks ago out of First uh, Peter uh, where he says, Be holy for I am holy. And those are the words of God that come uh, from the Old Testament. The deacon should be living a holy life. Verse 11. He says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, it says their wives. Now, the Greek word for woman is gynaka. And it is also the same word that is used for our English word wife. Now, as we read this in verse 11, uh, Paul here is likely not referring to the wives of the deacons, uh, but to women within the church uh, who serve in a similar capacity as deacons. Now, you probably just heard me say that, and you're thinking, now, preacher, you better explain that. Because if we read it for just as it is, likewise, their wives must be reverent, so forth and so on. Well, to better understand that, we need to go uh, back to uh, the context. And uh, we, we need to remember what uh, deacon is in the Greek. Diakonos, which means servant. Uh, women served a, or in various, uh, very important roles in the New Testament church. Uh, in the book of Acts, we learn that women prophesied. Uh, we learned that women taught uh, with Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla, uh, along with her husband, taught uh, Apollos. Um, Paul even sends uh, Phoebe, uh, who is, as he describes in Romans chapter 16, in the first verse of it, Paul even sends Phoebe. Remember, Romans is a letter to the church in Rome, and it, uh, chapter 16 begins with Paul sending Phoebe, uh, who he describes as a sister and a servant of the church in Centria, to the church in Rome. So in the context of this letter, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, uh, listing qualifications uh, for uh, the different roles for different people uh, in the church, he begins with pastors or bishops, as we learn uh, last week in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Then he uses the word likewise in verse 8. Pay attention to that. As we read through verses 1 through 7, uh, we know for a fact he's talking to uh, pastors right here. Then he begins in verse 8 with the word likewise. What he's doing here, he's introducing the qualification of another group, uh, deacons, servants, men. Then look what he does here in verse 11. He uses the word likewise again uh, as an introduction, which suggests a third group of servants, gynaka, women, women servants. Well, that sounds pretty far-fetched, preacher. 
Well, I'm just telling you what the words mean as we go through this. Think about this as well. Paul gave no qualifications whatsoever uh, for the wives of pastors, bishops, overseers, as we talked about last week. So there's no reason to assume uh, he decided just, well, let me give qualifications here for a wife of a deacon only. I believe right here, given uh, our knowledge of knowing the roles that different women play, different servant roles within the church, Paul is addressing, indeed addressing, a third group of servant people within the church, and these are the women. He goes on to say they must be reverent, which is the same qualification that we talked about uh, earlier for the men. It says that they are not to be slanderers, which is the plural form of the Greek word diablos. Uh, and this is a title frequently given to Satan. <laughs> uh, but the women who serve are not to be gossips. Uh, it says they need to be temperate. Uh, we learned in verse 2, uh, back when we were talking about the pastors, uh, that it means they must be alert, they must be watchful, they must be clear-headed. And the last thing... Uh, that he's going to say here about uh, this third group of servants is they must be faithful in all things. Women servants within the church uh, must be absolutely trustworthy in all aspects of their lives and in their ministries. Let's go on to verse 12. He says, let, let, the deacon, let deacons be the husbands of one wife ruling their children and their own houses well. We talked last week about that, uh, the husband of one wife uh, concerning the pastors. Uh, and we learned last week that this actually means husband of one wife or one woman man when we translate it from the Greek. This qualification here, just the same as it was with pastors, addressing it here with deacon, the, the men, uh, the deacons here, it is not a qualification that is addressing uh, polygamy, uh, widowers remarrying, uh, divorced men, or even single men, but is referring to the man uh, maintaining singular devotion, singular affection, and sexual purity, both in his thoughts and in his deeds. It says he must rule his own house well. Again, just like the pastor, uh, the deacon's home life, uh, like his personal life, must be exemplary. Uh, he must be the one who has authority over his own house and everything connected with it. I was talking about your business, uh, your, 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 the business of your home, and not merely his wife and children. He must live above reproach. Why is that? Because he is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He needs to represent him well. In the last verse right here that we're going to stop uh, on tonight, it says, For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
that is completely uh, self-explanatory and how encouraging uh, that is for men that have been called into the uh, service, uh, the ministry of being a deacon. <clears throat> and the rest of this chapter, uh, verses uh, 14 through 16, uh, it's going to begin to mark a transition point to the rest of the book, and uh, which really contains the heart of the church's mission. Paul encourages him in the first few chapters. He gives the qualifications for the different uh, offices, positions, whatever you want to call it within the church. And then he's going to transition into talking about the mission of the church, the mission of the body of Christ. Uh, so we're going to stop on verse 13 for tonight because of uh, the, the thought process changes. And he's going to talk a little bit about that mystery uh, before we get into some other things so with that, I'm glad you could join us tonight. Uh, I would like to invite you, if you haven't been coming, uh, to come join us on Sunday morning. Uh, we've been having worship service in our Family Life Center or gym. Uh, we also have been uh, broadcasting the service to those who uh, don't feel comfortable yet to come inside and drive up tune to 97.9, listen to it on the radio. And uh, we're also recording that as well and placing those online. Uh, but we'd love to have you. If you don't have a church home, if uh, you've been watching um, online from anywhere around here within driving distance, we would love to have you. If you have any prayer requests, feel free to message those uh, to our Facebook page and we would be glad to pray for you. With that being said, God bless you. I'm glad you could be here with us tonight. Good night and have a great rest of your week.